Welcome to the Robert J. Morgan Podcast, a podcast dedicated to helping you believe and cherish the Bible and to learn and love Christian history and hymnody. I'm producer Joshua Rowe, introducing your host, Robert J. Morgan. Rob has written dozens of books with titles like The Red Sea Rules, 100 Bible Verses Everyone Should Know by Heart, and Then Sings My Soul. His newest book, 100 Bible Verses That Made America, is a biblical tour through American history and releases in February of 2020, but can be pre-ordered now. Visit robertjmorgan.com for more details and for free downloads related to this resource or pre-order from your favorite online retailer. And now, here's your host, Robert J. Morgan. Hello, this is Robert J. Morgan talking about my book, 100 Bible Verses That Made America. Trying to explain American history without its Bible is like the Liberty Bell without its clapper. Had there been no Bible, there would be no America as we know it. Revisionist historians are trying to erase the Bible's influence on American history, but no eraser on earth can truly do that. I believe that it's past time for us to celebrate the past the biblical influences that helped create the United States of America. I have noticed, of course, that various other groups are pushing agendas to make sure that their contributions to American history are included, and laws are being passed to that effect. School children are being indoctrinated by forces of secularism, yet at the same time the radical secularists are minimizing or erasing the contribution of Christians and the role of the Bible to American history. And indeed, the very message of the Bible has been censored and banned in the schools of America. But no one can truly remove history and heritage, and trying to displace our national biblical history is a fool's errand. Had there been no Bible, there would be no America as we know it. Now, not every founding father was a Christian, and not every Christian among them was perfect. In fact, none of them were. But the Word of God itself is perfect and infallible, and it is a mistake to minimize the foundational influence this book of books has had on the creation and the sustaining of the nation that became America. A great example of revisionist and secularistic influences on altering history involves George Washington. During his lifetime, no one seriously doubted that Washington was a Christian. He was an Anglican, and he willingly said and affirmed the historic creeds of the Anglican Church. On his tomb, his family inscribed scripture about the resurrection. Washington died in 1799, and during the 1800s, no one seriously questioned his Christianity. At the beginning of the 1900s, it was commonly understood that George Washington claimed to be a Christian and was a Christian. Now, to be perfectly candid, I truly do not know if George Washington was born again, if he was a genuinely saved man, if he had truly placed his saving faith in God for salvation. I think he was, but only God knows that. But in terms of his professed and demonstrated faith, he was clearly Christian, and his beliefs and convictions and his Christian beliefs guided him in his character and conduct. And yet in the 1930s, as humanism filtered more powerfully into the currents of American culture, historians and biographers determined that George Washington must have been a deist. What is a deist? It's someone who believes there must be a God who created the universe and a world, but then, for all practical purposes, he abandoned it. There are different shades and degrees of deism, but it is essentially 
a belief in an absent God, a remote and impersonal God. The words deist and deism come from the Latin term deus for God. Deism says that God was the first cause of everything that he created the universe, but that he doesn't interact directly with his created world. He is absent. There are no miracles now. There is no divine revelation. To me, it's a very strange and unreasonable position. The very nature of the word God would imply infinite perfection, love, purity, wisdom, communicative ability, and concern for creation. In my opinion, George Washington was too reasonable and logical a man to hold such an unsustainable philosophy. But was he a Christian in his convictions? I want to devote two sessions of this podcast to exploring the religion of George Washington. And here is a biblical moment in American history with which I start my book. It occurred on April the 30th, 1789, at one o'clock in the afternoon in New York City on Wall Street. There at Federal Hall, General Washington, dressed in a modest, double-breasted brown suit, stood on the balcony beside a copy of the Holy Bible. It was bound in rich brown leather and had been hastily borrowed from the altar of a nearby St. John's Lodge. It rested on a red cushion held by Samuel Otis, the Secretary of the Senate, and it was opened to Genesis 49, the passage containing the blessings of Jacob to his twelve sons who were destined to be a great nation. Washington laid his hands upon that Holy Bible and took the oath of office as the first President of the United States. Washington did not place his hand on the Declaration of Independence or the Constitution of the United States, as hallowed as those documents are. Nor did he place his hand on any other religious or secular book. It was the Bible that sanctified the moment. It was the Bible that provided the foundations needed for democracy. It was the God of the Bible who provided the authority of human government. And after Washington took the oath of office, he did something else. He bent over and kissed the Bible. That alone would indicate to me that he had reverence and love for the Word of God and for its divine author. But in addition to that highly public, seminal American moment, let me give you 16 specific reasons for assuming that George Washington was a Christian and not a deist in his personal faith. Like everyone who studies this subject, I've used a number of sources. There have been many books about George Washington's religious faith since his death in 1799. But all of us who are interested in this subject owe a debt of gratitude to the extensive research done by Peter A. Lillibach in his best-selling book, George Washington's Sacred Fire. I certainly recommend it. But now, 16 reasons to believe George Washington was a Christian and not a deist in his convictions and professions of faith. Number one, Washington never declared himself to be a deist. Nowhere in all of his writings does he claim to be a deist, nor does he provide any endorsement or recommendation for deism. In fact, when his dear friend, Thomas Paine, who had written Common Sense, which helped define and shape the revolution, later wrote a book decrying the Christian faith in the Bible, that book was the Age of Reason, Washington broke off friendship with him. The two men became alienated by Paine's secular attack on Christianity. The Age of Reason was not in Washington's library, and after its publication, Thomas Paine was no longer on his correspondence list. Number two, while Washington never declared himself to be a deist, he did declare himself to be a Christian. 
On October the 25th, 1762, he took the oath to be a vestryman of his local church, and he affirmed his belief in the historic doctrines of the church and of the Bible. He spoke the creeds and made vows to the church and its doctrines. The official Mount Vernon website has a page devoted to Washington's religion. It says, quote, Much has been written about George Washington and his religious beliefs. Some even go so far as to suggest he did not believe in God while others believe he was a deist. While rather private about his religious beliefs, George Washington was an Anglican. The Washingtons attended services about once a month at two churches near Mount Vernon. During the Revolutionary War, Washington regularly attended services held by military, chaplains, and local civilian congregations. Often when he was traveling, Washington would stop for services at whatever church was nearby, regardless of its denomination. Unquote. Third, Washington came from a family of devout believers. His father was active in the Anglican Church, and as we saw in the last podcast, his mother, Mary Ball Washington, was godly and self-willed and a very active teacher to Scripture and of her son. Washington's wife, Martha, was a devout believer in Christ. No one doubts the vitality of her Christian faith and experience. Furthermore, Washington brought his children, who were his stepchildren actually, explicitly Christian textbooks and also prayer books and Bibles. He had their names gilded on them in gold. Fourth, George Washington spoke about his faith. Like many leaders, he was private about his own religious practices, and he worked hard to be non-sectarian in his statements. Yet sometimes he simply couldn't help himself and spoke explicitly about Christianity. Consider what he told the Delaware Indian chiefs when they asked for his advice about teaching their children. He told them that they would do well to, quote, learn our way of life and arts, but above all the religion of Jesus Christ. This will make you a greater and happier people than you are, unquote. On October 19, 1777, he wrote a letter to General Israel Putman, whose wife had died, and Washington said, I am extremely sorry to hear of the death of Mrs. Putman and sympathize with you upon the occasion. Remember that all must die and that she had lived to an honorable age. I hope you will bear the misfortune with the fortitude and complacency of mind that becomes a man and a Christian. On May 2, 1778, Washington issued these orders to his army. The commander-in-chief directs that divine service be performed every Sunday at 11 o'clock in those brigades to which there are chaplains. Those which have had none should attend places of worship nearest to them. It is expected that officers of all ranks will by their attendance set an example to their men. While we are zealously performing the duties of good citizens and soldiers, we certainly ought not to be inattentive to the higher duties of religion. To the distinguished character of patriot, it should be our highest glory to add the more distinguished character of Christian. And on June 8, 1783, after the war was over and Washington was disbanding the army, he wrote a letter to the governors of the 13 states, and he ended a circular letter with one of the most remarkable paragraphs you'll ever read. 
It is written in Washington's own hand. He ended his letter by giving the governors a prayer he had composed and was offering for the people of the United States. His prayer was that they should all become more and more like Jesus Christ, for without that influence we can never hope to be a happy country. I'll quote it for you verbatim. Washington said, I now make it my earnest prayer that God would have you in the state over which you preside and his holy protection, that he would incline the hearts of the citizens to cultivate a spirit of subordination and obedience to government, to entertain a brotherly affection and love for one another, for their fellow citizens of the United States at large, and particularly for their brethren who have served in the field, and finally, that he would most graciously be pleased to dispose all of us to do justice, to love mercy, and to demean ourselves with that charity, humility, and pacific temper of mind, which were the characteristics of the divine author of our blessed religion. And without a humble imitation of whose example in these things, we can never hope to be a happy nation. Well, who was the, quote, divine author of our blessed religion? That was Washington's reverent and diplomatic way of referring to Jesus Christ, without a humble imitation of whom we can never hope to be a happy nation. Here's a fifth reason why I believe Washington was a Christian. He displayed a broad knowledge of Scripture. He was certainly an avid reader of Scripture. His favorite verse, or at least one that he seems to have quoted more than any other, was Micah chapter 4, verse 4. But they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and none shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken it. This was Washington's view of what he wanted in his own life and for what he wanted for all Americans, that everyone would have a little place where they could sit under their fig tree and under their vine with security and without fear and with reverence towards God. Number six. Washington loved and listened to and collected and read sermons. On Sundays when he was home, he went to church, and in the evening he and Martha would read Christian sermons that he had collected. Washington had a personal secretary who served him from 1784 until the president's death in 1799. This man was Tobias Lear. He wrote, quote, While president, Washington followed the invariable routine on Sundays. The day was passed very quietly, no company being invited to his house, and after breakfast the president read aloud a chapter from the Bible, and then the whole family attended church together. Unquote. Washington's stepson, George Washington Park Curtis, was known as Wash and was raised at Mount Vernon, and he said, quote, General Washington was always strict and decorous observer of the Sabbath or Sunday. He invariably attended divine services once a day, when within the reach of a place of worship, his respect for the clergy as a body is shown by public entertainments to them. On Sunday, no visitors were admitted to the president's house with only one exception, Mr. Speaker Trumbull. On Sundays, unless the weather was uncommonly severe, the president and Mrs. Washington attended divine services at Christ Church, and in the evenings, the president read to Mrs. Washington in her chamber a sermon or some portion from the sacred writings. In fact, Washington collected sermons and had them bound for his library. For example, Reverend Isaac Lewis preached a sermon entitled, The Divine Mission of Jesus Christ from His Life and from the Nature and Tendency of His Doctrines. 
Today we try to come up with catchier titles to our sermons, but that was the custom then. Well, in this sermon, which was a favorite of Washington's, Isaac Lewis said, quote, Either Jesus Christ was who he professed to be, the one sent by God and the Savior of the world, or he was a deluded enthusiast who thought himself the subject of a divine mission and of divine revelation when, in fact, he was not, or he was the grossest and most designing impostor who ever lived. One or the other of these must have been the truth. If then his life and doctrines were such, as it is impossible to suppose they should have been had he have acted the part either of an enthusiast or a deceiver. It must follow that he was the person he claimed to be, and the religion he taught is from God. And if Christ received his mission from God, Christianity is established on an immovable basis. The nations may rage, and the people may imagine a vain thing, but the counsel of God shall stand, and he will do all his pleasure. The church rests on an unshakable foundation, and the gates of hell shall never finally prevail against it. Well, as I said, Washington loved that sermon, and he wrote a letter back to Isaac Lewis, saying, For the sermons that you had the goodness to send me, I pray you will accept my thanks. The doctrine in them is sound and does credit to its author. I wish I could get the President of the United States to endorse one of my sermons or my books like that. These are the sermons that Washington collected and read to his family. It was sermons like this. Number seven, Washington was faithful in attending church, although critics have pointed out that he went for a long stretch of time without taking the Lord's Supper. They say that proves that he turned away from his Christian upbringing. But there were perhaps reasons Washington did not partake in communion for a period of time in his life. He was Anglican, remember, which was the state church of England. Washington observed communion up to the time of the Revolutionary War. But during the Revolution, he was leading a rebellion against the man who, in British thought, was the head of the Anglican Church. And so, it was a complicated matter. There are credible reports that Washington received communion from other denominations, and that after the war, he again received communion from his own church. But it's also true that communion was not practiced so often in those days, only two or three times a year and that communion services were held after church and not during the actual service. So I think it may be a mistake to try to define Washington as an unbeliever simply because we don't know how often he attended communion. And eight, in their extensive analysis of George Washington's writings, letters, statements, proclamations, and speeches, Jerry Newcomb and Peter Lulbeck found that Washington used about a hundred different titles for God. And he used the word God over a hundred times, and the word heaven over a hundred times. He called God the great author of the universe, the great disposer of human events, the all-powerful guide, the almighty God, the architect of the universe, the giver of life, the God of armies, the great director of events, the greatest and highest of blessings, the Lord of hosts, the ruler of nations, the ruler of the universe. Washington also used a variety of terms of reverence and respect to describe the Lord Jesus Christ. As we've seen, he is the divine author of our blessed religion. Washington also called him our gracious redeemer, the great Lord and ruler of nations, the judge of the hearts of men, and the giver of life. Some people say, why didn't he just use the name Jesus more often? But part of the answer has to do with the culture of preaching in those days. When one reads the sermons from the pulpits of the period around the Revolutionary War, one discovers the same phrases. 
In the Old Testament, the Jews did not want to say the name Jehovah or Yahweh because it was so sacred. And there seems to have been something of that attitude in colonial history. Preachers would talk about our gracious Redeemer, the divine author of our blessed religion, and so forth. They were referring to Jesus Christ, but they tended to use honorific terms. They tended toward elegant language, and as a political leader to all Americans, this language suited Washington's purposes well. Well, there are more reasons why I believe that George Washington was a Christian and not an atheist, an agnostic, or a deist. We'll look at them in the next podcast. I hope that you will follow along and also check out my book, 100 Bible Verses That Made America. This podcast was produced by Joshua Rowe and Clearly Media, edited by Elijah Rowe, music by Jordan Davis. For more information and resources, visit my website at robertjmorgan.com. This is Robert J. Morgan. Thank you for listening.